we're going to be in, in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25 this morning as we start this new series. I, I heard about these two brothers in this small town somewhere else, uh, very wealthy guys. They own most of the businesses in town, and they kind of ran things. They were the kind of men that, uh, because of their personalities and their resources, everybody basically bowed down before them, uh, seeking their approval. And along came this new preacher at the local church. And everyone remarked about how different he was, how he just didn't, he was no respecter of persons. He treated everybody the same, whether they were uh, the, the mayor or the town drunk, they were the same in his eyes. He spoke the truth in love. If it hurt somebody's feelings, it wasn't gonna be because he was rude about it, but he would say the truth. And, and so everyone was very excited about this new pastor. The two brothers, of course, were very cynical about this. They said, oh, I'm sure he's just like every other preacher, every person we've ever met. I'm sure he's got his price too. And the day came where one of the brothers died unexpectedly. And the other brother figured this was his chance. So he went to the new preacher and he sat down with him. He said, uh, listen, I know we've never darkened the doors of your church, but I, I want you to do my, my brother's funeral. And I want to make an offer to you if... Uh, I will write a check to your church today for $50,000 if you'll make me one promise, and that is that you'll stand behind that pulpit and you'll tell everybody in town that my brother was a saint. The preacher thought for a moment and he said, yeah, I'll take that deal. So the rich man wrote out the check, signed it, and laughed to himself as he handed it over and then went out, told everybody in town, y'all better be there Thursday morning because you're gonna see, you're gonna see that your preacher is, is just as fallible as anybody else and he can be bought just like any other man. And so the whole town turned out, packed that little church, and people standing in the aisles and folding chairs and, and some of them even outside listening on an intercom. Uh, the preacher got up to speak stood behind the pulpit and pointed to the casket in front of him and said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm gonna tell you what you already know. The man who lies before you today uh, was a lying, greedy, evil, manipulative person who cheated everybody in this town at least once, uh, who cheated on his wife, who was a deadbeat dad, uh, and who never did a single good deed in his life unless it put money in his pocket. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> Now, that's not a true story, <laughs> as much as I'd like it to be, but the story I'm about to tell you is uh, another funeral story, my favorite, although I didn't attend this one. Uh, there was a man uh, who grew up, I, I mean, I grew up in a community with him. He was the age of my grandparents, but the little, little rural community I grew up in, there were several dozen people, so everybody knew everybody. He went to our church, and a, a good and decent person, unlike the, the rich man in my first story, but... A man with plenty of flaws, like most of us, like all of us. Uh, and at his funeral, my parents went to it. They told me about it later. I'd grown up and moved away by that time. And they said uh, that the preacher there, this is my mom's term, the preacher tried to preach him into heaven, which I think was her way of saying he was trying to sell God on the fact that this guy was good enough to get into heaven without grace. He was just talking about how good and how unselfish and how thoughtful and how generous he was. And my parents are looking at each other the whole time going, man, he's kind of laying it on thick, isn't he? And after the service, they saw, they happened to run into in the grocery store, uh, a deacon from the church. And they went up to him. I've never forgotten this, even though I wasn't there for it. I've never forgotten this line that he said. They went up to him and they said, what'd you think of that service? And he said, I had to go up there and look in that casket, make sure I was at the right funeral. <laughs> and I've always thought about that story. I, I always 
had made a promise to myself. I mean, I'll just tell you as a pastor, one of my greatest honors is that I get, to, I get asked to officiate funeral services for people who've passed away, sometimes for people I don't know, but many times for people that I've gotten to be the pastor for and I've gotten to know. And although it's hard for me emotionally, it's hard to say goodbye. I wouldn't want anybody else to get to do that because I get to sum up their life. I get to honor them. I get to preach the gospel to some people who maybe they'll never be in church again. And that's their one opportunity to hear about a savior who loves them. And so it's, it's such a great opportunity. And I've always told myself, I'm not gonna do what that preacher did. I'm never gonna say things that aren't true about that person. I wanna honor them, of course. I wanna say all the good I can about them, but I'm not gonna say things that people are looking at each other going, who's he talking about? Now think about John the Baptist. Think about what a preacher might say at his funeral. Think about the qualifications of this individual, if you know anything about him. One of those people, one of the few whose birth was announced by angels. You know it's something special then. A man who uh, knew Jesus while he was still in the womb, was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was even born. The first prophet in Israel in over 400 years. Most famous man in the country. Could have had anything he wanted, could have done anything he wanted. He spoke so powerfully with such conviction, such boldness, that the very king himself trembled before him died a martyr's death, and he's the only person I know of of whom Jesus said, there's never been anybody better. So we're talking about an exceptional individual. And yet today I wanna tell you about the one thing about him, the one thing that made his life significant. And it's the same thing you and I are looking for, the same thing you and I need. You see, there are a lot of you in this room, especially in this service, who are younger than me. A lot of you who are in your teens, your 20s, your 30s, and you've got a lot of years ahead of you, Lord willing. You've got, you've got decades to live and you've got dreams and you've got goals and you've got plans and you've got hopes. And I don't wanna squash any of those, but I just know that statistically speaking, most people your age are gonna waste those years. You're gonna be stressed over things that don't matter and you're gonna ignore the things that do. And you'll look back when you're my age and go, oh, I wish I had those years over again, but they're gone. Wouldn't it be great if, if something that I said or something the Lord spoke to your heart this morning or over the next few weeks would change the trajectory of your years so that you could look back someday and say, I lived the years of my greatest energy and freedom to the best of my ability and I did good things. And then some of you are in, in my stage, you're in that stage of life where it, it's, you're, you're caught between a rock and a hard place. I don't mean to overstate it, I, I love my life, but, but we still are responsible for our kids. They're teenagers or they're young adults and we're still very much helping them get started. Meanwhile, our parents are getting the age where we have to help care for them. And so we're, we're caught between those two responsibilities. Meanwhile, we're not getting any younger and there's that voice inside our head that says, hey, enjoy yourself. But on the other hand, we've reached a stage in our career where we have more responsibility than ever and we're working really hard. And so it, we feel like we're spinning all these plates and we know, we know that if, if we're gonna make a mistake, it's gonna be at this stage of life because so many people our age do. And wouldn't it be great if these years were the best years, the years where we maximized all the opportunities God placed before us. And then many of you in this room are in that post-retirement stage. Some of you haven't actually retired, but you could if you wanted to. And I know that the world is saying to you, and maybe even your body's saying to you, you know, you've done enough. It's time to just step aside, let the young people take up the yoke and enjoy golf and grandkids and travel and, and shopping. And, and while you deserve all the fun you can get, and I don't begrudge you any of it, I do wanna say, and if every person your age and older in our church just suddenly quit, we'd be sunk because you have, you have a depth of experience and wisdom. You have spiritual gifts and you have so much that we need. 
don't quit. In fact, these can be the years when you make the biggest difference for the Lord. And everybody here, I just want you to understand whether this is your first time here or you've been here forever, I, I just want you to understand someday you're gonna lie in state before a congregation of people, maybe in an urn, maybe in a casket, but there's gonna be a preacher like me who's gonna have to sum up your life. And, and what do you want him to say? What do you hope that he says? More importantly, what do you hope you can say when you stand before the Lord on the day of your judgment? And I know, I know you're not responsible for your salvation. Hallelujah for that. Jesus has taken care of that. And if you're in him, you don't have to worry about it. But still, you're going to want to say to him, Lord, I, from the day I became yours, here's the life that I lived. Here's, here's the people I tried to reach. Here's the things I tried to do for you. As, a, as my small way of saying thank you, this is the life that I'm offering to you today. Now think about this. There is one thing that makes a difference. One thing you're going to be glad of on that day, if you do it. And we're gonna look at it this morning. And that thing was evident in John's life before he was even born. That's one of the real exceptional things about him. So we're looking today at the story of his birth. Chapter one, verse five. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, if you were reading this in the first century when Luke first wrote it, you would have noticed two things right off the bat. Number one, the, the fact that they were childless was significant. Now, I've known some couples in, in our current era that have struggled with infertility and it is a source of pain and, and, and anxiety for them. And I don't mean to diminish that at all, but it's nothing like it was in the ancient world. Because in those days, people judged you by the number of children you had. If you were a man, to have your quiver full of arrows, as the book of Psalms says, meant you were a rich man no matter how much your bank account was. So the opposite was also true. If you had no children, you were like a warrior with no arrows. And it was even worse for women because at least in that world, men could, could gain some sense of self-worth and, and make a contribution through work. But women didn't have that opportunity offered to them in the ancient world. And so if you were a woman who could not have children, you felt like you had nothing to offer. And I think that's why over and over again, God chooses women in that state. He chooses women like Sarah, Rachel, Rebecca, Hannah. And he says, okay, the world says you're not doing anything worthwhile. I'm going to put you in my word and use you to do great things. And Elizabeth follows in that, same, in that same path. You can imagine she and Zechariah praying day and night and weeping many tears. Lord, why, why won't you give us children? The other thing they would have noticed when they read this is that Zechariah was a priest and that's significant, although not nearly the same thing as today. Some of you come from Christian traditions where uh, the minister, the clergies are called priests. It's not anything the same as the Jewish priesthood. Because if you were a Jewish priest, you didn't have a congregation that you oversaw like a priest today. As you see here, he was part of a specific division of the priests. There were actually uh, 24 divisions, 18,000 priests or so totaled, more or less. Uh, it, it was sort of like being in the Army Reserve. Two weeks out of the year, you were on duty. And then with all the, the annual festivals as well. So six weeks out of the year, wherever you lived in Israel, you would leave your home, you would leave your, your, your fields and everything you were doing because the rest of the year you live like a normal guy. And for those six weeks, you'd go to Jerusalem and you would essentially do logistics work for the temple. But every day during your active duty time, 
they would cast lots to see who got the honor of going into the holy place of the temple and lighting the incense, burning the incense before God, the incense that symbolized the prayers of God's people lifting up to heaven. And on this particular day, Zechariah got that honor. He won the lottery, so to speak, and he got to go into the presence of God. The only time in his life he would get to do this. You can imagine how excited he was, how nervous he was, There are people gathered outside praying, according to Luke. I'm sure they thought to themselves, if we pray close to where that incense is being burned, then our prayers will mingle with the incense and they'll be more likely to be answered. And so in a sense, he had an audience, but none of them could be inside that room with him. There he was, just him and that magnificent holy presence. And you can imagine his hand shaking and his heart pounding. This was the culmination of all his years and all his devotion. So keep that in mind. Keep his anxiety in mind as you read this next line. Verse 11 says, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. The Bible is so understated. I would imagine Zechariah jumped out of his own skin because we know from the rest of the scriptures how terrifying the sight of an angel was. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your, angel, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, Zechariah knew the word. And so he would have recognized in what the angel said that he was referencing Malachi 4. In Malachi 4, it says that Elijah the prophet is gonna come back in a sense and he's gonna prepare the way for the Messiah. And so Zechariah would have understood, this angel's not just giving me great news that I'm gonna have a child for the first time in forever. And, and finally, I'm gonna get what I've prayed for. Even better, our Messiah's coming. Now you and I cannot possibly comprehend what it was like to long for a Messiah. We've never lived, most of us, I, I doubt any of us have, in a country where we were oppressed like the Jews were. To to know that it was prophesied that someday there's gonna be this deliverer who's gonna come and change everything and to pray every day, Lord, please let it be today. Please send your deliverer. We beg you. Zechariah knows not only is he coming in my lifetime, but my son's gonna have an integral part in preparing the way for him. But Zechariah makes a mistake. He says to the angel, okay, but how can I know this is really true? And the angel says, because you said that, you won't be able to speak until the child is born. Now, I don't know, does that seem harsh to you? Anybody else? It does to me, especially when you consider the history of the scriptures. There've been several encounters like this. I, I, the, I counted up all the ones I could remember. Abraham, Moses, Gideon, Saul, and Hezekiah all asked for a sign from God when he came and revealed himself to them. And then in a few weeks, he's gonna see Mary and Mary's gonna say something similar. She's gonna say, how can this be because I'm a virgin? And yet God didn't punish any of them. Why Zechariah? We don't know. All I know is God knows the heart of every human being and maybe Zechariah had a special kind of doubt that needed, that needed a lesson. And I can tell you, if every day Zechariah woke up and had to remind himself, oh yeah, I can't call out 
good morning to my wife. I can't go out and speak to my neighbor. I don't have the ability to speak anymore. That was a daily reminder that this child my wife is carrying is no ordinary child, and I'm not going to be an ordinary father, and I need to be ready to be his dad. So, speaking of Mary, it's not long after this that the same angel shows up in her house and appears to little Mary, this this young teenage girl, and tells her she's going to give birth to the Messiah. And immediately she sets out for the Judean hillside. She wants to see her cousin Elizabeth, this woman who also has a miraculous pregnancy. Now keep in mind, it's not like Mary texted Elizabeth and said, hey, by by the way, I'm coming to see you, and I saw an angel. Uh, I want to tell you all about it. No, Mary shows up unannounced. Elizabeth knows nothing about her encounter with Gabriel, so keep that in mind when we read this next passage. Verse 41 says, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Two things about that I want to point out. Number one, note that the first human being outside the immediate family of Jesus who knew who he was and what he had come to do was an unborn child. Think about that for a moment. Second thing, Elizabeth starts our story as a woman who feels unworthy, a woman who's probably seen as less than by the rest of the world. But now she's a prophet of God. Now she stands and she speaks words straight from the Holy Spirit, words that no one else knows. She is prophesying on behalf of the Lord. God chooses the right instruments every single time. And then think about this. She also calls Mary's baby, the mother of my Lord, or calls the baby my Lord. That's significant. We'll get to that in a minute. Now, months pass and John is born. So picture Elizabeth, this woman with gray in her hair, inside a tent with all the women in her family clustered around her, mopping her brow, encouraging her, a midwife waiting for the birth. This child emerges and she holds him up and says, it's a boy. And and Elizabeth's saying, yes, I know. I I was ready for that. And the the midwife says, well, what do you want to name him? And she says, his name will be John. And all the women of her family begin to protest. In my mind, it's the mother-in-law who speaks up. You can't name him John. What kind of name is that? There's no Johns in our family. And so then they, they say, well, let's go check with his father. Now, ladies, wouldn't this make you really angry? I just did all this work and you're going to check with dad. I I have the right to name my son. But they go to Zechariah, mute Zechariah, and they say, uh, what should his name be? And he writes on a sheet of paper, his name is John. And at that, his tongue is loosed. And for the first time in months, he's able to speak. And don't you know that he's been storing up words? Don't you know he's been thinking and planning? When God gives me back my speech, I, I want to be ready to say the right thing. And he takes this baby in his arms and he speaks words that some branches of the Christian church still take the words of Zechariah, the nunc dimittis, and, and they speak it as a prayer, uh, and as a litur- liturgical prayer in their services. But he, he speaks these words, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but starting in verse 76, he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins 
because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, I want you to think about this. Many of you know this, and if you don't, you're about to learn it. God's people waited for hundreds of years for a Messiah, and then he came, and most of them rejected him. That's one of the history's great ironies. Why? Well, because he wasn't what they expected. Had it all worked out in their minds that he would be this military leader who would conquer their enemies, who would destroy the Romans in the same way David had destroyed the enemies of Israel before, and they would see their enemies kneel before them. And along comes this gentle and humble carpenter who says, no, 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 love your enemies, pray for those who hate you. That's not what they wanted. They wanted someone who would sit on a throne and make his enemies bow before him. Instead, this one let his enemies kill him on a cross. He wasn't what they wanted. And yet, Zechariah and Elizabeth and unborn John, they got it. Elizabeth says, this child is my Lord. Zechariah says, he's come to save us, not by winning a battle, but by forgiving our sins. He's come not to make himself powerful on earth, but to reach the very lowliest of the low. And that little unborn baby, John, in utero, signifies at first, the first one to jump inside his mother's womb and say, that's the voice of my Savior. Now, what is it that makes a life significant? What is the one thing, the one thing that makes life worth living for? It's pointing people to Jesus. If you want to know the secret of John's life, if you want to know why he was one of the greatest people who ever lived, according to Jesus himself, It's because he pointed people to Jesus. It wasn't because he ate bugs. It wasn't because he lived in the desert. It wasn't because he was extremely bold. You can be none of those things and still live a significant life. You don't have to serve in foreign missions. You don't have to uh, surrender to vocational ministry. Although some of you may have that call on your lives and if so, we'll celebrate you and and equip you. But to, to live a life in which you point people to Jesus is the way to live a life of significance. I'm telling you, there are a lot of great things you can do. You can start a business from scratch. You can build it up until you employ hundreds of people and bless the economy. You can can create art that enriches humanity. You can do research that advances civilization. You can devote your life to alleviating human suffering. You can serve overseas, protecting our freedom. You can be an, an officer of the law, a first responder who keeps us safe over here. You can teach a classroom full of hooligans, right? I mean, you can do incredible work at at great cost. But nothing, none of those things, none of those things on their own are why you were created. You were made to know the Lord God and to make him known to others. That's a life of significance. Because think about it. Think about it. If, If you made millions of dollars and gave it all up to the poor, they'd still have empty souls. If you were smart enough to cure cancer, we'd all celebrate and millions of people would live longer lives, but we'd all still die of something anyway. But if you live a life that points people to Jesus, you change their eternity. You change eternity for thousands because the one or two, the 10 that you might reach, they reach others and it spreads from there. That's how the gospel spreads. That's how the church became what it is. That's the whole purpose And so I want to ask you a question, and this is what I want you to wrestle with today and for the rest of the week, or however long the Holy Spirit keeps you awake at night with this thought. What does your life point to? If you died today and some preacher got up and tried to sum up your life, 
what would they say? You know, I would never be this honest at someone's funeral. But if preachers were completely honest, they would say things like, you know, what mattered most to her was working. That, that's just it. I mean, I, I'm glad y'all are all here and I'm glad you loved her, but uh, she loved her work more than any of you. Or, you know, what mattered to him most was being right. And if you ever disagreed with him, be sure he thought you were a moron because he was right about everything and he let you know about it. Or, or maybe she cared about her image above all else. The clothes she wore and the choices she made and the way she spoke and the way she lived, it was all about oppressing you, impressing you and, and putting on a, a particular image. Or maybe, you know, he loved having fun. His life was all about extracting the maximum amount of personal enjoyment out of every single day. So if he didn't have time for your problems and your issues, it's because he was out there sucking the marrow out of life and you can't blame him, can you? I mean, you could say that about a lot of people. What would they say about you though? If we were completely honest, what would they say? See, the best funerals I ever get to do, even though they're the hardest for me because I'm, I'm saying goodbye to true friends and people I'm gonna miss, but the best ones are the ones where I don't even have to think of what to say because their life is a sermon. Their life, not perfect, but their life is a sermon. They, they, they're sinners saved by grace. And, and sometimes I don't even have to say much because everybody's clamoring to get up and speak for them and, and say, here's what they did for me. Here's how she was there for me when I was in the darkest point in my life. Here's how he taught me who God is. Here's what I saw of Jesus in her. So what does your life point toward? What does your life point toward? That's the question of whether you're going to live a life of significance. If you can't definitively say that people who encounter you get pointed toward Jesus, then here's my challenge to you. Ask God what you need to do. What would it take, Lord? What would it take? What kind of changes would I need to make to where I could confidently say that my life makes Jesus known to others? And again, you don't have to be a super bold person who stands on street corners or, or who debates with atheists. There are people in this room who are extremely introverted and can be some of the most outstanding witnesses in the world. What matters is that everybody in your life, when you see them, you love them in the name of Christ and you live a consistent witness before them and you look for an opportunity to make him known to them. This is why, this is why if you ask me what my goal and my dream is for this church or anybody on this staff and hopefully anybody in this congregation, you're not gonna hear, well, you know, we're about this many right now and I hope we're double that in five years. If that happens, I'll rejoice because the more the better, in my opinion, but I don't really care. That's not what we're about. We can double or triple in size and still absolutely fail as a church. Now, what I care about, what I think we're about is the fact that there are thousands and thousands of people living in Montgomery County and hundreds more moving in every day. And most of them need what the people in this room have. And so we need to get these people in touch with those people. And it's all a matter of you and I deciding that the guy who cuts my hair and, and the woman who teaches my second grader and, and the guy who coaches my son and, and the, the people who live next door and the guy across the cul-de-sac and the guy who's out there working on my car, I mean, they all matter to Jesus. And I'm gonna be asking, Lord, how, how can I create a relationship with them that draws them from being this far away from God to maybe that far away from God and maybe someday, maybe someday have an opportunity to say, let me tell you what Christ has done for me and what he can do for you. 
And that's why our goal is 10,000 transforming relationships by the year 2030. Can you imagine if the people in this church had that kind of relationship with 10,000 different people? That's what we're hoping for. So again, what are you pointing toward? What does your life signify? And, and let me just say this and then I'm done. Remember when I'm challenging you for this, you're not pointing people toward a list of rules, right? It's not about you fixing their life and making them walk the straight and narrow. You couldn't do that if you tried. And if you try, you'll fail and you'll drive them away. I promise you. It's not about that. It's not about a religion either. Do I want them to go to our church? I'd love that. But it's not really about that either. It's about pointing toward a person. A person who created them, who knows them better than they know themselves. A person who 2,000 years ago died knowing that they would someday live, died so that they would have an opportunity for eternal life. In other words, you're offering them, you're pointing them toward good news, the best news. There's no greater honor than that.